to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. It should be on the screen behind me. So the last time we were together in Mark, this rich young man came to Jesus asking uh, how to in- in- inherit eternal life. The disciples were wondering how it's possible for people to be saved. And then Jesus told them, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And now Jesus uh, foretells his death and resurrection for the third time. He's already done it twice, but he, he adds more to it now. So we'll begin reading together, Mark ten thirty two, and then I'll pray. And they, being Jesus and his disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him. It's not might, but was to happen to him. Saying, verse 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Amen. Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you for all that we have heard already this morning. Thank you too for the powerful testimony of your grace, God. And we do thank you that your word and the gospel is more powerful than anything in this world that is able uh, to open our eyes and, and, and to give us a fresh sight of Christ. So we pray that your spirit would be moving in every seat this morning, that he would be opening our eyes to behold our Savior. We pray for Sam this morning. We ask, oh God, that your spirit would, would fill him and give him, give him power and faithfulness to your word as he preaches. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. So as Alex has mentioned already, as we come to Mark 10, 32 and 34, this is the only story that Mark relates to us, his entire gospel, that he tells three times. Which should give us an idea of the significance of this teaching. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us uh, about certain miracles or stories or parables of Jesus three times. He tells us once. Now, there will be times where Jesus might perform a similar miracle. But Mark doesn't tell us any other teaching of Jesus three specific times. All of these coming back to back to back. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. If you're taking notes, that's Mark 8, 31 through 33. Mark 9, 30 through 32. And Mark 10, 32 through 34, our passage today. And so this morning, I want to ask this question because we see how important Jesus, Jesus or his desire for his disciples to know and understand his upcoming death. And as Alex has mentioned or already kind of given a hint, the title for this morning is The Death of Jesus in Jerusalem. Why did Jesus die and what did it accomplish? So this morning what we are going to do is we're going to take a step back from Mark. And what I want to do is just take a look at the Old Testament. We're going to take a look at three really important stories, I would say foundational stories, that help us understand why Jesus understood that it was God's plan that he died. And we're going to kind of weave them together. As we we look at our Advent, and as we mentioned uh, before, when we, we talk about Jesus coming, when we talk about his birth, when we talk about this Christmas gospel, 
we recognize that all of the scriptures are pointing to Christ. And the Bible is not uh, just a group of, of individual stories, all that are helpful and true. It is actually one story that God is telling. The story of redemption. The story of God and man and how we sinned and how God has been working to bring us back into relationship with him. And all of that is a part of why Jesus came to die. And so this morning we're going to take a step back and we're going to weave together three stories and we're going to talk about why did Jesus die. We're going to look at specific stories that are constantly God is, is painting for us. Uh, and, and the way that the stories works is that even in Genesis, God is beginning to paint pictures for us of what it's going to look like for him to bring us back into relationship with him. And as God continues, and as we read more of the Old Testament, God continues to tell that story. But with each time, God fills in a little more of the details. And most fully, we understand what God was doing when we see Jesus on the cross. Now quickly, before we just pass over Mark 32 to 34, because we have talked about Christ's death twice in Mark 8 and Mark 9, let me just list out for you six things from 32 to 34. I don't know if you have this on the screen. Okay, so let me tell you six things that we see in all these passages. That Jesus is teaching over and over again. So if you're making notes, here's what we see. One, Jesus is going to be delivered over. We see that there's, uh, this is getting to the fact that this was a definite plan of God. This was not a mistake. Jesus used the word delivered. Number two, that he's going to be condemned and sentenced to death. By the way, that specific line here in 32 to 34 is new. It's new information. The fact that Jesus would be condemned or sentenced to death gave the understanding that there is going to be some kind of public trial. So this was new information. The fact that Jesus would be handed over, before Jesus had said he's going to be handed over to the chief priest, but this time he actually gives even a little more information, and he talks about the fact that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. And we see that this is fulfilled when Jesus is handed over to Pilate. The next thing we see is Jesus is going to be mocked and spit on and flogged. This is also new information. What you see here in this mocking and spitting on and flogging was public humiliation. There was no understanding that this Jesus, who they understood to be the Messiah and who was performing miracles, would, would experience anything other. I mean, they had seen opponents. But to be publicly flogged, that was, that was punishment. That was punishment for a crime. To be, uh, to be spit on, to be publicly shamed, this was something that was inconceivable for the disciples. I mean, Jesus had been in debates, right? He'd been in, in some pretty heated debates with the chief priests. But who was always the one in control? Jesus. We next, we hear that Jesus is going to be executed. And we have, we have seen this fact before in Mark 8 and Mark 9. And lastly, once again, we're reminded that in three days that Jesus is going to rise again. Two things I'll tell you that Jesus doesn't make known. Jesus has not yet revealed he will be crucified. That is going to be a complete a surprise to his disciples, the manner in which Jesus is going to die. And secondly, that he's going to be 
betrayed. Now, Jesus tells them, his disciples, at the Last Supper, right, as he's one of you going to be betrayed me, but this is another fact that Jesus doesn't fully give his disciples an understanding. So, these things are critical. Jesus is giving facts about his upcoming death, his imminent death, that he wants his disciples to know and process. Do they get it all then? No, they don't fully understand. But Jesus is is revealing a little more each time that he teaches them so that when he dies, they can look back and recall. Now, I want us to to kind of have our thumb or have a finger in Mark, and I want to read Luke 18, 31 to 34. Because this is what we call parallel account. Here is Luke's uh, parallel account of this very same third teaching And I want to specifically refer to verse 34. Luke mentions something that Mark does not. Luke 34 says this, But they understood none of these things. So we have the third teaching. We see how critical, how important it is for for Jesus to relay this information. But Luke tells us once again, the disciples still are at a point where they understand none of these of these things. And that's the purpose of this sermon today, because we see with this threefold repetition that to be a disciple is to understand and embrace Jesus' death and to know why he died. It's it's the most fundamental and basic aspect of being a disciple, is that you know and understand why Jesus died. You see, it's, it's central to being a disciple. So, this morning, I think Des had this slide up earlier. We're going to do two things. If you're going to walk away, what are you going to walk away knowing today? You're going to know why it was God's plan for Jesus to die. Three stories from the Old Testament. We're going to take a look at what that accomplished. What it accomplished from God's side and what it accomplished for us on our side. We're going to look at those two things. Now, keep your thumb in Mark, and I referenced this passage, or excuse me, Luke, again. I referenced this passage earlier, and I want to just point to you, because uh, this is a critical text for understanding the Bible as one story that is pointing to Jesus. Luke 24, 25 to 27. Do you remember after Jesus died, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus, and he is with uh, he, he basically is like a traveler. He's like a pilgrim. He's walking alongside, and he walks alongside of two men who are discussing the recent events of Jesus' death, and they can't make sense of them. And Jesus kind of plays the game. He comes alongside, and they said, haven't you heard the news? That this Jesus, this prophet, was killed? And Jesus comes alongside of them and begins a conversation, and it picks up in Luke 25, or 24, 25. It says this, And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. When he says Moses and all the prophets, that word specifically means the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Beginning in Genesis, going all the way to Malachi. When he's saying uh, beginning... With Moses and the prophets, what does he say? He interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So let me just put some pieces together. Jesus has told his disciples for the third time about his upcoming death. 
Luke lets us know that his disciples didn't understand any of what Jesus was saying. And there's a reason they didn't understand is that before Jesus' death, if for, for us to know and comprehend why Jesus died, we know and comprehend because we read the other New Testament scriptures that tell us the full story and begin to lay out the theology of why Jesus came to die and make clear, but his disciples didn't understand. And so what Jesus did is he literally went through the Old Testament and it says basically he interpreted those things for them to tell them what they mean in regard to him so they would understand. And his disciples didn't have somebody doing that for them just yet. Jesus never fully revealed all that he could to his disciples. That's what we're going to do this morning. This morning we're going to go back, just like Jesus did in Luke, and look at the Old Testament. We're going to explain some of the critical stories. Now, I can't explain everything. I'm going to take three foundational passages, some passages that you're very familiar with in the garden, maybe some that you're less familiar with, Day of Atonement, We're just going to look at how these are all being woven together and all are telling the story of Jesus and helping understand why he died. All right, so without any further ado, let's begin and let's get right into Genesis. We're going to go to the garden where God created all things good. And so from the very beginning when God creates, he creates all things good. In fact, God says they are very good. And we know the rest of the story. We know that Adam and Eve didn't trust God, didn't trust his good plan. And as a result, they choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible calls this sin. So in Genesis 3, 7 to 10, this will not be on the back, but let me just tell you what happened. I'll review it with you. Right? We know that when Adam and Eve ate of the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, It says their eyes were opened and they realized for the first time that they are naked. And it says, and they sewed fig leaves together. So they tried to clothe themselves. They took uh, plants, they, they, they took leaves, they sewed them together, and they made themselves a covering. And then they hear God coming into the garden because it was... The, the way that the, God's relationship was with his people, that God created man in his own image so that he would be able to have a relationship with him, that they would know him and enjoy him. And that was their complete existence up until now, is that Adam and Eve, each and every night, God would come and it says he would walk in the cool of the garden. God, the creator of all things, would come and walk and talk with his people. And, and he would be with them. The Bible doesn't tell us what those conversations look like, but I can tell you uh, what uh, I can imagine they would be. It would be full of questions. I don't know if if you've been a kid or you have questions. I had constant questions for my parents. My kids have constant questions for me. Part of the discovery of life is that you see things and you want to know how does this work or what does this mean. Imagine uh, God created Adam and Eve and he gave them life in the garden. But many things they discovered for themselves. God didn't explain how everything worked. Adam had the opportunity to name the animals. And he was to govern creation in God's stead. But Adam wasn't God. Even Adam had to ask God, how does this work? Or what about this animal? Or, I, or how, 
And so God would, would walk and talk. Maybe he would reveal about him and his character. Maybe it was just encouraging. Maybe it was just being with God. But this is what we know was their existence. And when God steps back in that one particular evening where they had chosen to sin, he steps back into a very different situation. The Bible tells us instead of running to God, they hid. They hid from God. And God asked him a question. He says, where are you? And they were afraid and they said, I was naked and I hid myself from you. And for the very first time, something enters into the relationship between God and man that never existed before. First of all, it was sin, but it was the shame for sin. There was a guilt there that before God even came pointing a finger and condemning and say, you sinned, God came to be with his people. And what did he find them doing? Hiding. Separating themselves from God. So that is the background to our story. And let me read Genesis 3, 21 to 24. Because I want, if, if that was the result of Adam and Eve's sin, the result was immediately they felt a separation from God. They wanted to hide from God. They wanted to run from God. There was a shame there that they, felt they, they had never felt before. And here is a response of grace in Genesis 3, 21 to 24. If you've never read it this way, I hope your eyes are opened to see God's grace. And it says, And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and Uh, And at the east of the garden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. And so we have this unique story. And if you've never thought of this, this story lays the foundation for why Jesus came to die. And we see all of the elements that are going to be worked out on the cross of Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see in verse 21, Genesis doesn't explain it for us. But you see a sacrifice. The first response to man's sin was that God takes animals and he sacrifices them. Now, that word is not in the passage. It doesn't say, and God sacrificed an animal. It says, God, uh, the Lord made for Adam and Eve garments of skin. Now, think about this. Adam and Eve had taken leaves and tried to clothe themselves. If you just think about it from an average perspective, did God think somehow fur was much better than leaves? Was an aesthetic thing. God said, no, 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 no. That's not good. You need fur. It had nothing to do with the actual outfits themselves. But it had everything to do with something much more important. Because the first thing that we see is that God obviously has taken animals and he has killed those animals he's taken their lifeblood and with the animals that he's taken the lifeblood he makes clothes and he gives them to adam and eve and says these are the clothes that you must wear the leaves that you have made your the way that your own hands have tried to provide for your nakedness and your shame and your sin are not sufficient mark that 
that Adam and Eve tried to, to make provision for their own sin. And God steps in the garden, and the first thing he does is says, what you have done with your own hands, your own provision for your sin, your own covering of your shame and your sin is not possible. And so God takes the life of animals. It doesn't tell us how many or if it was one large animal. All we know is that God takes uh, garments of skins, which means he took the life of an animal, he took uh, uh, the, the fur or the skin off, and then he clothed his people. And notice how it says God clothed them. What a gentle term. Is that God was the one who provided clothing for them. There's no, there's no unwasted words in Scripture. And when we look at this, what Genesis is communicating to us is how God graciously responds to sin. Now, let's look at 22 to 24 also. Because the last, uh, the last kind of picture we have of the garden is Adam and Eve being forced to leave the garden, which can seem like punishment, but it's also grace, actually. Because what God does is God is showing his people that your sin not only required a sacrifice, but it was serious. It was deathly serious. Your sin required death. And instead of taking their own lives, God shows grace and he takes the life of an animal. And he covers them with that animal's skin. But then God says, but sinful people can't live in a holy God's presence. Not only can they not live because uh, that's a part of a blessing of knowing God, but literally God's holiness is deadly. God takes his people and lovingly pushes them out of the garden and says, you can't be in my presence. And do you know that from Genesis into Revelation, we never see God alone and in, in, in people in his presence apart from one place, the temple where God is going to make provision and come back, and we'll get to that in a second. But the story of the Bible is a story of uh, a man and a woman and now an entire people who God has made and loves and wants to be in relationship with him. But as a result of their sin, not only they're separated and they're shamed and they understand their sin, but they're separated from God's presence. Never again to be in God's presence, which was for their good, which was for their enjoyment, which was to experience the fullness of God's blessing and plan. But for folks, for you and I, we live outside of Eden. All of us, we have been living outside of Eden, outside of the place that God designed for us to live and be in, which is in his presence. And so we see that it was God's love that pushes his people out of the Garden of Eden. And God sticks an angel there, and the angel was to guard the tree of life. Why? Because in no uncertain terms was man in sinful condition to have access to the tree of life where he could eat and forever be in a sinful state. You know where we see the tree of life come back? Heaven. God is going to be working to bring us back into a place where we're in relationship with him and what appears in the new, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's the tree of life. It's lining the river of life. It's producing fruit in every season. No, yeah, but by the way, there was a very specific reason why we named our church River of Life. 
And so as we look at this first picture, here's what we see. The first thing that we see is that when God created man and he made man to be in his own image and to know and enjoy him, that man's sin required a sacrifice. Sin was punishable by death. God doesn't explain it more. Genesis doesn't explain it more, but we see there was a death for their sin, but it wasn't their own lives. We see that there was a covering for sin. We see that there was a separation for their sin. And so what we see is that God judges sin and shows grace at the same time. Now, I want to move to a second story from the Old Testament. And that story is the story of Passover. So the first story that we saw was basically God creating all things. When we come to the story of the Passover, you may be familiar with the Passover uh, from the Scriptures. It's in the book of Exodus. So we got Genesis, we have Exodus. Exodus is the story of how God calls a people to himself. I don't have the time to connect all of the dots, but if if you are familiar with the Scriptures, you know that the story continues after the Garden. God is going to come and God is going to make promises. Uh, We're going to have the story of Noah. We're going to see God punish sin, yet provide salvation through the ark. We're going to see God come and make covenant promises to Abram. And eventually he becomes Abraham, of how he will bless the whole world through him. We're going to see that God begins to make covenants with his people, telling them of his promises, and then always fulfilling those promises. And as the story unfolds, one of the things that God is going to do is God is going to call back a people to himself. And whereas we saw in the garden that God is going to be separated from his people, this is amazing. God loves us too much to be separated. So when he calls the people out to himself and he gives them his law so that they might know him and that they might begin to walk in his ways, which the Bible says are for their good, God cares so much that he finds a way or provides a way where he can come and live in their midst. They still can't be in his presence. That's the Holy of Holies. But God allows a way that they would know that he he loves them so much that he would come and dwell with them. And God's holiness comes again and dwells in sin's midst. This is one of the stories of how that happens. But the background... For Exodus 12, which we're going to look at and read in in, in full, Exodus 12, 1 to 14. If you have your scriptures, get them ready. But this is when Israel was slaves in Egypt. Now, the story is going to go forward several thousand years. And we're going to see that there is a group of people who are descendants of Abram. uh, And the the book of Genesis ends with the the account of Joseph. And we're going to see that the, the Jews begin to grow and multiply in the land of Egypt. And they become slaves to Egypt. And then God raises up Moses, and God is going to uh, call Moses and to be his mouthpiece. And he says, you go, and you go to Pharaoh, and you tell him to let my people go. And here's Pharaoh's response. Who are you, and who is this God that you think has the right to demand that I let the Israelites or the Jews go? And so Pharaoh says, no, he's not going to acknowledge God's claim, and he refuses to let the people go. And we know that God is at work to make himself known among the nations. Uh, Egypt at this time would have been the most advanced, the most powerful nation on earth. And God is going to come, and he basically is going to pick a fight. 
He's going to say, I will show you. I will show my glory. I will show my power. And when Pharaoh responds, no, God hardens his heart and says, okay. The world will see the strength of my mighty right arm. And the ten plagues begin. And when we get to the Passover, the Passover is the story of the tenth plague. There's many different plagues that that begin to unfold. And if you know your Bible history, every single one of those plagues is aimed at a different Egyptian god. God basically, it's like a domino. God says, all right, you don't believe in me? Pharaoh doesn't believe in me? God begins to show in every way, shape, and form that he is the God over all the earth. And he will do as he pleases. And the last plague is this plague of the firstborn male from every household. And that's where I want to pick up. God has told his people about this, Exodus 12, 1 to 14. This is the Passover. I'm going to read it with you. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. Now, how, let's see how important this is. This tradition, uh, this, uh, this celebrating or, or honoring or respecting or keeping of the Passover says will be the first of months. They are to reorient their entire calendar around this moment. Talk about culture defining. It says it will be the first of the months of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors are to take uh, according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Notice how carefully this and specific this is. A lamb, a lamb that is a male, a, a, a lamb without blemish. You shall take it to the, uh, from the sheep or the goats. You shall keep it to the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7, it says, Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall not let none of it, or you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains to the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with haste. Now notice it says, It is the Lord's Passover. Verses 12 to 13 are really important. It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you, and on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14, it says, This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep this feast. Now, perhaps as I'm reading this, you begin to see how important this idea of sacrifice is for God and for his people and for relationship with him. But let me just point out a few things as we read that story. I don't know how much time you spend in Exodus or how familiar you are with the Passover. Maybe you're just more familiar with it in modern day terms of, of, we know of the Jewish Passover or them keeping the Passover. 
But here's what we see. We see that God is going to execute judgment. He's going to execute judgment on Egypt for all of its false worship. In fact, he's going to execute judgment on every home, Egyptian or from his own people. But at the same time, God makes a provision. That provision is through a substitute, a lamb. Not just any lamb, a male lamb. Not just any male lamb, a perfect lamb, an unblemished lamb. And then there was also not just the lamb, but once you killed that lamb, you were to take it and basically use the blood and paint over the doorpost of your home to, as a signal, as, as a sign that, God, we have believed you at your word, and we believe that you are going to come and execute judgment. You will judge sin. And everyone within that household, when God's, uh, his, basically his death angel came by, he passed over every household who had in faith taken a lamb, a male lamb, an unblemished lamb, and painted over their doorpost. And God makes clear that he not only will provide a substitute, that he's made a provision for his people, that that, that provision needed to be perfect, that God would, in fact, judge sin. There, there is an ongoing record all throughout the scriptures that God judges sin. He judged sin in the garden. He judged sin with Noah. He, is, he judges his own people in their sins. There's blessings and curses when God gives his law. But we also see that when God calls the people to himself, that at the heart of their celebration, in fact, the way that they would set up their entire year, the first month was to honor this Passover. They were reminded, we serve a God who executes judgment against sin, but at the same time graciously provides a way, a provision for us, for those who are, have placed their faith in this provision of a lamb that they could be spared and shown grace and mercy from judgment. This is what the Passover does. And notice verse 14 where it says, this is to be a memorial. So the Passover was not a one-time thing, but God says, this is your new identity. At the beginning of every year, you celebrate this Passover because this is the substance, this is the essence of my relationship with you. How does a holy God dwell among a people who are sinful? Well, through God's own provision. Once again, could Adam and Eve provide? Could they sow fig leaves in any way, shape, or form that would somehow cover their sins? No. And does God invite his people to somehow make appeasement for their sins? No. He provides the way and invites them to know and trust in the way that he has provided. They couldn't offer any sacrifice. They couldn't offer any kind of lamb. They couldn't offer uh, anything but a male lamb that was their best. Now, I want to move towards the Day of Atonement because this is another key uh, Old Testament story that is woven into the Old Testament so that we might understand God. So we now have two understandings. We have the understanding of the garden. We now have an understanding of the Passover. I want to tell you about the Day of Atonement. This is Leviticus. Leviticus 23 I'm going to read verses 27 and 28. I'm going to just take a very short snippet. I won't go into uh, significant detail. But God says in verse 27, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month. Now Passover was the first month. God is now going to institute this day of atonement. 
And it is on the tenth day of the seventh month, he says, is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. And you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Verse 28 says, And you shall not do any work on that very great day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Three times this passage uses atonement. So let's just ask, what does that word atonement mean? Now, when we talk about words and unpacking words, atonement is the English word that we use. So let me just tell you what atonement means. In, in modern day, actually, you don't hear anybody but church people use the word atonement. They're, thank you, Zion, for, for signifying this is a true statement. Uh, we don't see it in, in modern language, but actually, before we began to use the word atonement in the Scriptures, atonement simply means as it is spelled, at-one-ment. At-one-ment. Atonement is used when two parties are reconciled and brought back into unity. That's the English meaning of the word. So when we see atonement, once again, I'm talking about the English meaning. The English meaning of atonement is at-one-ment, bringing reconciliation or uh, bringing two parties back into unity. When we talk about the Old Testament, by the way, this is the first time the words atonement are used in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, this word translated atonement is always for one specific Hebrew word, and that word is kafar. That word is used 104 times in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word meant one simple thing. Much like the English word, it didn't have a technical religious use. The the word in the Hebrew, kafar, simply means a covering. A covering. And maybe as you begin to think and reflect on these stories, you begin to understand what God is doing and providing a covering. He does it in the garden with Adam and Eve. He begins to show how you have a covering when you paint the blood over your doorpost. And in this day of atonement, God says, this word atonement, that you need to make atonement before you or before the Lord your God. Verse 20, 28, it says, For it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. So something has to be done each and every year that it is a covering for Israel's sins. And it was to be celebrated in the seventh month. So they celebrate the Passover, which was the provision of a substitute lamb. And they're told that they have to celebrate this atonement. Now, let me describe just a little further what atone, or the day of atonement was. I read for you a snippet. Maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not. Here's what would take place. The Day of Atonement was the highest and holiest day in Israel. On that specific day, that one day, the, whole, the, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Remember now we're at a place in Israel's history where they have a tabernacle. They have a place where God dwells in their midst. And in that tabernacle, this place where God would dwell, there was a holy of holies, and no one was to enter the holy of holies at the cost of their life. But one day a year, the high priest would go into the holy of holies. And on that day, he would do several things. The first thing is that the high priest would take a young bull, and he would offer that bull 
as a sacrifice for his own sins. How could a sinful man go into the presence of God? God said, here's how you'll go. You will take a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. You will take that young bull, and then you will put that on the altar. And then that high priest would also do something else. On that day, there would be two goats that would be killed. And those goats would be brought forward. And the high priest, each and every year, would offer those sacrifices for the sins of all of Israel. And those two goats did two different things. The first goat, they they would lay their hand on the goat's head, symbolically transferring their sin. And that goat would be sacrificed, and that the blood of that goat would be put on the altar. Symbolically saying, God, we understand sin is serious. We understand sin separates. We understand that sin causes guilt and shame. And we understand that in your provision, you have allowed us to take the life of a bull or a lamb or a goat and to make provision. Life for life. The second goat where they would put their hand on that goat's head was called a scapegoat. And that goat would not be sacrificed. Instead, it would be let out into the desert. And it would be let free. And it was to symbolize that God was taking the sins of his people. He was taking them outside of the camp, far away from his people. And he was forgiving their sins for another year. They didn't sacrifice uh, a young bull and the goats each and every day. God appointed one day. But it was a constant reminder between Passover and the Day of Atonement that God is a holy and loving God. But there's a tension here. Because God in his love longs to be with us, but God in his holiness, would his very holiness would kill us. Apart from the very fact that our sins demand a punishment of life for life. And so as we look at these three stories, we can kind of combine these with, with what Alex preached on last week, Isaiah 53. By the way, we never planned that. I told Alex, I could not have, have, have believed that we would have a better introduction to the sermon this week than Alex preached Isaiah 53 last week. And the fact that today is the first day of Advent, which is talking about the problem of sin. Stefan, by the way, you read Romans, which is we're going to end with today. We had two of my texts for this week read last week and laying a foundation. But here's the tension that had been building. Maybe you've noticed it. Animals can't atone for the sins of a person. There's no way that sacrifice in the garden truly took care of Adam and Eve's sin. There's no way that the Passover truly forgives people of their sins. Not even a perfect spotless lamb. There's no way that on the Day of Atonement that a bull somehow sacrificed can somehow forgive the sins of a high priest. And that the symbolic, uh, taking the life of, of one goat and releasing the other did anything for our sins. In fact, I can prove to you as much because here's the problem. In Hebrews 10, 3-4, it says, But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This is from the Scriptures. And so you see the tension. Because how does God show love and grace if the blood of bulls and lambs don't expiate our sins don't make us clean. Something 
must be taking place that we don't yet fully see or understand. Well, Isaiah 53, which Alex preached on last week, give us a glimpse. I won't read all of that passage, but Isaiah 53, 5-6, to it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 is the first time we get a glimpse that there is going to be a provision of a sacrifice that is not a blood sacrifice like a lamb or a bull, but someone is going to take our sins. Someone is going to take your sins and my sins, the sins of the world. Somebody is going to be pierced for our transgressions, for our iniquities. And specifically, it's God's plan in verse 6 to lay on this substitute the iniquity of us all. And so now you see that as, as uh, Jesus had to come alongside of, of those two men on the road to Emmaus, is that someone needs to take us by the hand and walk us through Genesis and walk us through the Passover and walk us through the atonement and preach to us Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant to explain to us what was taking place on that cross. I told you that we would seek to answer the question of why did Jesus die? Well, the Bible has been painting that picture since Genesis. Jesus died because a sacrifice was required for our sin, life for life. Jesus died because our sin is so serious that it requires the blood, the shed blood of not just a bull or a goat, but of a perfect Lamb of God. In fact, we have those very words from John the Baptist. When he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to die because a substitute was needed. A sacrifice must be given. And the the fig leaves or anything that we can do, we saw it with the rich young ruler, that as we we don't dress ourselves up in fig leaves today or in... but we do with good works. That we come to God with all the things that we think we do, that we think uh, that we hold on to for our righteousness. And just like in the garden, when Adam and Eve clothed themselves and God came looking for them and says, that will never do. You need a perfect sacrifice. And so the Passover shows us God's plan. Why did Jesus die? Because God always intended to provide a substitute that by faith, when we shelter under the blood of Christ, that the, that the death angel who punished Egypt for his sins and even punished God's own people, anyone who did not apply the blood of that lamb to their doorpost also experienced judgment for sin. And God invites us to believe That in the same way that God passed over sins in the Passover in the Old Testament, God is inviting us to trust in him that he will pass over our sins through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to provide atonement, that word, at-one-ment. Jesus came to reconcile us. Why did Jesus die? Because Jesus needed to bring us back to God. Our sins separated us, and we are outside the garden. And to this day... Until God creates the new heavens and the earth, we still do not get to experience life on earth in God's presence. But God has made a way where he comes and lives in us through the Holy Spirit. 
And so Jesus died for this atonement, this, this covering. Jesus died so that he could be a covering for us. That Hebrew word kafar, this idea of covering. What ultimately happened was that Jesus became a covering for us. He would clothe us in his righteousness. In the garden, God clothes his people in the skins of an animal. But in Jesus Christ, he clothes us with the very righteousness of his son. That is why Jesus came to die. I know that all of us, as we sit here, probably know and understand if we ask the question, why did Jesus die? All of us know Jesus came to die for sin. Jesus died because God loved us. But I want you specifically to think categorically, biblically, through the stories. There's a story in the garden, and there's a story in the Passover, and there's a story in atonement, and every single one of those has given you concrete reasons to know and understand the depth of what Jesus Christ did for you. Because God has been telling a story of his great love for us since the garden. Two things. What did Jesus' death on the cross accomplish for God and for us? I'll just read two verses. Romans 3, 21-26, I referenced this. Stefan read this last week, and I'm just going to zero in. The whole passage of 3, 21-26, I actually just want to focus on verse 25. And it speaks of Jesus. It says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So here's what that stake for God. Why did Jesus die? If Jesus did not die, God could not be just. Because the blood of bulls and the blood of goats in no way could pay for sin. And so since the garden, think about it. Have you ever seen a dam where that dam is holding the water back? And as the floods rise, and we see this occasionally when we have a dam, a dam, we have this man-made thing where we are holding the water back. But occasionally, when we receive kind of torrential rains, there's so much rain that that, that, uh, that dam can't hold the water. And eventually, that water breaks, oftentimes literally just devastating the wall. And it comes down, and it will completely wipe out entire towns. Cities, because of the force, the weight of that water, the movement of that water. Since Genesis, God's wrath against sin has been building up and being held back by his grace. But we all knew, God always knew, that there would have to be a point where God allowed his wrath to be appeased by a proper sacrifice. Not on bulls, not on lambs but on a perfect lamb of God, his very own son, who had lived a perfect life. And for the first time, God's perfect and loving wrath for sin found a match in a perfect, matchless sacrifice for sin. Once and for all, never to be offered again. The Passover, each year they had to offer. The Day of Atonement, each year they had to offer sin. But in Jesus Christ, once and for all, God allows that wrath that has been building up on his son. And in doing that, God showed the world, I am just. And because sin is offensive against the holy God and requires life, I will take life and I will execute judgment on sin. 
And at the same time, God offers us his very own righteousness. And so what we see is that God is both just and the justifier of us. This is what Satan couldn't have foreseen would ever happen. That in allowing Jesus Christ to die and and having Jesus betrayed, that he had taken care of Jesus. And what he didn't understand was that God would become just and the justifier of all who believe in him through the death of his son. What did Jesus' death accomplish? God was just and the justifier of us. And let me just read and close in this beautiful passage from Hebrews. What did it do for us? There's so many passages I can point to, but I'll just tell you, it gives you confidence and full assurance of our salvation. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the new and the living way that he opened through us, or opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting of together which we're doing today, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because Jesus poured out his life, you have absolute confidence. You can draw near to the true, holy God without fear. Your heart sprinkled clean, your conscience washed clean, and your sins washed pure. That is why Jesus came to die. He came to die so that God might be just and the justifier of sins came to give you absolute and full confidence that if I have placed my faith in Christ, that I now no longer have to run. Where do we begin? Adam and Eve running from God. What does Jesus allow us to do? Because he's covered us with his righteousness, we now have the opportunity to run to God into his very presence and to draw near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these truths are too wonderful for us. That the God of all of the world would love us and lay his life down. I pray for every heart in this room. Father, that you would open our eyes to your gift, to your substitute, to your sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who has laid down his life once and for all for sin. I pray that every person in this room would leave knowing that through you, they can have forgiveness of sins. They can have peace that can only come from a clean conscience. And they can have life. That they can approach the holy God who made all things, knowing that he is now their father, reconciled back to him through the gift of Jesus' life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.